Hello and welcome to a Flatpak History of Sweden, the podcast that takes you chronologically through the history of the country that is not Switzerland. My name is Elsa. And I'm Chris, and we are your hosts. And yes, this is not a podcast about the history of the lovely country with the funny clocks and the Alps and the chocolate and stuff, but rather about the lovely country with the smelly fish and great pop music from the 70s and 80s. And I guess it is maybe easy to get those two confused, uh, or at least some people tend to do that, and even American presidents do that. Uh, Joe Biden accidentally said Switzerland a few months ago when talking about Sweden joining NATO, and that meant that the Swedish Tourism Board released a sort of a mock serious video with lots of funny suggestions about how to keep the two apart in your memory. Yeah, I mean, the names are similar, and there are things like mountain and snow that both countries are famous for. I don't blame people for getting it wrong occasionally. Occasionally. And that video that the tourism board did was quite funny. I remember it had one bit that was like, Switzerland is famous for loud noises, like yodeling. Sweden is famous for no noises, because we like silence, which I thought was very funny. Yeah, that is very good. We'll try and find it and uh, link it in the episode description, because yeah, a lot of Swedes do like a quiet walk in the forest, that's for sure. So yeah, just have a look for yourself and see if the advice is helpful. But before you do that, uh, perhaps listen to the rest of this episode, because here comes the Swedish phrase of the week. This week's phrase is just one word, which I guess is less of a phrase then, and more of a term. Anyway, it's dog. And that translates to English as squeeze day. Uh, but it's not a day for going around and hugging people or squeezing lemons and oranges. It refers to a day that falls between a public holiday and a weekend or another day off. So say, for example, the 6th of June, which is Sweden's national day, one year falls on a Thursday. The Saturday is obviously a weekend. So then the Friday becomes this squeeze day, this clem dog, because it's squeezed in between the public holiday that most people have off for work and a weekend, which is also a day that a lot of people, but obviously not everybody, have off too. Now, why do we Swedes care so much about these days that we've invented a particular word for them? Well, it's because many of us have it in our contracts at work that we have the squeeze days off as well without having to use our holiday days. So squeeze days or klemdagar are essentially free days off work for many people. And since they create a long weekend, if a public holiday is on a Tuesday or Thursday, then the Monday or Friday becomes squeeze day. And hey-ho, you've got yourself a four-day weekend without using any of your allocated holiday days. Yeah, it's very good for the Swedes. Uh, like we said, getting the Swedes days off don't apply to everyone, though, but it's definitely not uncommon. And if it's not a full day off, people might try and use overtime or finish a bit early because that's kind of a bit of a tradition. Uh, unfortunately for me, I don't get the squeeze days off, but also does. So that's a bit of a beef that we have between us in our household. <laughs> you have a beef. I have a lovely day off without you. I have some excellent me time on the squeeze days. Yeah, it's terrible. 
in a way, it's similar to the Swedish tradition of dag för a röd dag, or a day before a red day. And a red day is the Swedish term for a public holiday, what we call a bank holiday in the UK. And it's called that because it's usually marked red in old wall calendars or pocket calendars or calendars you get for school. So a day before a red day is the day before a public holiday. And some Swedes will have it in their contract that they only work half a day before a public holiday. So a bit like a squeeze day, it's a time for getting extra time off without using your holiday days. And uh, I don't get those either, whereas Orsa does. So yeah, another tick for Orsa. Now, before you rush off to get a job in Sweden, you should note that you're not guaranteed to get neither squeeze days nor half days before public holidays off. Like Chris was saying, he doesn't get them. I do. And there's no laws saying you should have it or that you shouldn't have it. It's up to what contract you have at work. In fact, unlike in some European countries, quite little about Swedish work life is regulated in law, at least when it comes to salary and work time. We have no kind of national minimum salary, for example, like they have in some countries. Instead, the Swedish way have always been to have very strong unions that negotiate with employers on behalf of their members, but also on behalf of the workforce in general. So less is regulated in law and more is left up to separate agreements on the labor market. Yeah, so for example, if I didn't join the union but worked in an area that was regulated by the union, so I would get the benefits of the collective agreement without being a member of the union myself. Exactly. I know also would especially like to do an entire episode on Swedish labor practice and the history of the unions and the development of the modern day Swedish labor culture. But uh, we'll skip that for a potential future episode that probably won't ever happen. Don't say that. I am itching to talk about the practice of collective of tal, collective bargaining agreements. But I guess I'll have to wait for that to come at some other time, even though that is something that's been in the news quite a bit at the moment because Tesla and Elon Musk are having a bit of a row with their Swedish workers and the industrial workers union here. But I'll uh, have to contain myself and plan a special episode about Swedish collective bargaining agreements for another time. Yeah, but if you are interested in learning about that, there's actually been a load of articles about it, even in the international press about it, because yeah, it involves Elon Musk and everybody's mad about reading about him. Uh, So if you just Google Sweden Tesla strike Elon Musk, uh, there'll be loads of articles from places like The Guardian and I think CNBC did something on it and things. So there's information out there if you want to know a little bit more about this. But yeah, uh, we should probably uh, jump into the episode. But before we do that, uh, we should actually mention a plan we've been uh, trying to concoct for our 100th episode. Yes, and we need a little bit of help from you, our lovely listeners. Because, like Chris said, we are fast approaching the milestone in podcasting that is our 100th episode, at least 100 regular episodes. And we thought it would be fun to do something special for episode 100. A bit of a listener's request episode, uh, so to say. We'd love to hear your ideas on topics you think we should cover, and we'll see what we can do. 
Yeah, so if you've heard about something in Swedish history that you'd love to know a little bit more about, it could be from a period we've already covered or from something further ahead in history, then send us an email on flatpackhistorysweden at gmail.com or a message on Facebook or, or Twitter. And if you don't already follow us on those platforms, just search for our name and you'll be able to find us easily enough or yeah, probably just send an email is easier than signing up for Facebook or Twitter. Yeah, we look forward to hearing your ideas. Now, huge topic like, say, the Great Northern War, it might be uh, too much to talk about in one episode. But if you've got something that's about a particular battle from that war, or, say, something about ABBA, or about a prime minister, or some region of Sweden, let us know. We're open for any suggestions. Yeah, so just get in touch and we'll uh, pick one we like. But now it's time to go back to 1505 and the ongoing war between King Hans in Denmark and our new regent Svante Nilsson in Sweden. Last time we saw how, after a brief period under one king, the Swedes once again rebelled and there's now war within the Kalmar Union. King Hans has sailed his fleet to Kalmar and massacred people there in what became known as the Kalmar Bloodbath. The Danes then blockaded Sweden and raided the coast. You had to give them money or you would be burnt down, literally. Uh, sometimes local figures and even bishops were captured and then ransomed back, all to raise money. Interestingly, the fleet Hans was using to do all of this was quite unique for Scandinavia at the time. Hans is the first Danish king to make a navy just out of ships built to fight, instead of just using converted merchant ships. This is somewhat late, nearly a hundred years after some other countries, as if you look back to 1418, the English had launched the Grace Dieu, which was a 66-meter-long warship, actually longer than the HMS Victory that was built 350 years later, if you want a comparison. So the Scandinavians are late to the party when it comes to building a navy. Yeah, and speaking of Hans building a navy, it's worth just going back in time a few years and mention something we didn't mention in the last episode. This was when in 1495, when King Hans and Crown Prince Christian were on their way to a meeting in Kalmar. They were on board their spectacular flagship, the purpose-built ship Gripshunden, and this was commissioned in 1486. It was armed with 11 cannons and was around 35 meters long. And Gripshunden, by the way, is a bit of a funny name because it means griffin dog, which I'm sure is a type of creature we'd all like to imagine in our heads what that would look like. But anyway, Gripshunden had been constructed yet yeah, around a decade earlier and was a top-class carrack as a type of ship, and it was very modern for its time. Unfortunately, though, when a storm broke out, they had to seek protection by anchoring out outside Rönneby in Blekinge on the south coast of Sweden, and whilst they were in the port there, a fire broke out and Gripshunden sank. The king and the crown prince barely escaped with their lives, and 150 soldiers and sailors died. And by chance, King Hans himself wasn't aboard at this time, but he witnessed the flames engulf his flagship from a distance in one of the ship's boats that was taking him back to land. At the time, there was a lot of speculation about if the fire had been an inside job carried out by a Swedish agent, but there was nothing to prove that. Instead, what 
keeps Gibbs Hunden interesting is the fact that since it was at anchor, shielding from a storm when it sank, it wasn't very deep where it sank. In fact, it only sank 10 meters, which makes it a very accessible and very well-preserved wreck, and it's popular among divers. So if you're interested in wreck diving, definitely check out Gripshunden. And if you don't feel like getting wet and dive down yourself, visit Blekinge, the local tourism board, has a cool video on their website that you can watch and see the wreck where it lies. Yeah, and for those of you who won't be diving down, which is probably, I'm going to guess, 99.99% of our listeners, uh, let's just talk a little bit more about what they found there. And among the military artifacts found in the wreckage by all the modern-day divers are chainmail, crossbows, bones, barrels, and glass. And the shipwreck remains loaded with artillery consisting of iron cannons, of which 11 mountings have been found. These cannons aren't the giant cannons you'd expect from watching Pirates of the Caribbean, but they're actually light cannons that were used as anti-personnel guns, shooting sailors on other ships up close. So they weren't intended to sink other ships, just kill the people on board. And they offered support for the hand-to-hand combat forces which would board the enemy ships, and that was the main way of fighting uh, in naval battles at this period. Indeed, no broadsides being fired from hundreds of meters away here. That's still in the future. The infantry could also shoot at the enemy, though, as divers have found a crossbow and even one of those handguns, the very early handheld firearms that have been used in battle so far. So that's very cool. The ship was also more than just a military flagship. It was a really important part of displaying the Kalmar Union and particularly Denmark's power, as one archaeological report reads about its excavation. Gipshunden was not merely an instrument of military force, but also a status symbol, serving as a material expression of power of the Kalmar Union monarch. Ultimately, given the political nature of the voyage, Gipshunden's primary mission was to instill confidence into the Swedes that King Hans was in fact the rightful and supreme leader of all of Scandinavia. Yeah, and some of the decorations and fittings of the ship of this time are amazing. Uh, You can look into the Vasa, which is a very famous Swedish ship, but I'm sure a lot of our listeners have already heard about for another great example of the types of decorations and statues and all kinds of things that have been found on board. And talking about that, there was actually something very cool found in August 2015 when a nearly perfectly preserved wooden figurehead which was weighing 250 kilograms or 550 pounds was found on board and brought to the surface and it was in the shape of a mythical beast and is a dog-like or dragon-like sea monster with lion ears devouring a person in its mouth that looks a bit like a crocodile and it's amazing and definitely relevant to the name of the ship Gripshunden. Yeah, so there we go. The Griffin Dog, Gripshunden. Cool name and an interesting wreck. I like to believe it was uh, like Sweden's James Bond who started the fire and burnt it down. Perhaps he was called uh, Johannes Bunde, 
instead. Yeah, yeah, I think that's definitely the case. <laughs> but now it's time to go back to the timeline because the Danes are now using their tailored fleet minus the Gripshunden to sail up and down the Swedish coast, hijack Swedish shipping and keep their castles at Borholm and Kalmar supplied with men and rations. But the fleet, whilst being fresh and new and all ready for battle, is actually defeated at least once at sea when Svante Nielsen buys ships from Lübeck and uses them to win a battle against the Danes. But the main part of this conflict is still focusing on the major castles, and our main man Hemingad is once again in charge of the siege, this time of Kalmar. But he's struggling to get the locals on side, as the farmers there will only want to fight if this is going to be a short battle. They don't want to hang around for months and months doing a siege because they have work to do on the farm. Yeah, and that is the problem uh, when relying on the peasant armies. They definitely have two parts of their life to focus on. Peasants in the border regions agreed that they wouldn't fight each other, their neighbors essentially. They wanted to trade as normal and live a peaceful life. They sometimes even warned each other when an enemy army was coming their way. On at least one occasion, the Swedes tried to raise an army from this border region to attack the Danes, but had to give up the idea because the local peasants just didn't agree with it. Amusingly, when Hemingad does get one group of peasants to join the army, men from an area called Möre, he celebrates by firing off a dozen of the hand cannons, but one of them accidentally hits one of the new farmers turned soldiers that he's been working so hard to recruit. It's really, really, really bad. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the peasants are understandably really angry and demand punishment for the soldier who hit their man. But things settle down a day later when the man who was shot actually pulls through and it becomes clear that he will make a full recovery. Yeah, worst celebration ever. <laughs> yeah, if you're celebrating getting new recruits, don't celebrate by shooting one of them. I think it's a lesson we can all take on board. Anyway, they put all this drama behind them and the city is taken from the Danes in October. Of course, like most of these sieges we have seen, the castle itself is still in Danish hands and it will be a long time yet before anything can be done about that. Yeah, because like most of these cities, as we said, the, the city itself has some walls, just like over in V-Boy in Finland, but the castle has its own walls and is separate. So even if you take the city, it doesn't mean you can just walk in and take over the castle. You need to siege that again too, and that's what's happened here in Kalmar. And even though the Danes have had at least that one defeat at sea, they do still have superiority at sea, and even more so when they take Orland Castle and its garrison commander prisoner. They try to put a full blockade on Sweden by attacking merchant shipping, but Svante Nilsson creates a convoy system which negates this blockade at least partly. Yeah, so it's really all push and shove from both sides at this point. I take this castle, you take that castle. I sink some of your ships, you sink some of mine. And it's really punch and counterpunch. And this leads to a bit of hope that a negotiated settlement might come around almost by default because nobody's winning. And there are positive signs from Hans who indicates he might actually give up the right to the Swedish crown if he was to receive a large regular annual payment or bribe from the Swedes. <laughs> 
And it looks like this will finally get a peace deal over the line. So the parties agree on the idea of this tribute or bribe, and all was looking well. Perhaps too well, though, because once the Swedish negotiators got home uh, and spoke to the rest of the council, the rest of the council was saying, whoa, you didn't have permission to you know, offer Hans all of these terms. So when they got back to the council and the council heard what the Swedish negotiators had proposed, half of them didn't want to agree with this. And so they didn't go through. The Swedes who wanted peace on these terms couldn't push the, the deal through the council. But then news comes in from Finland and a Danish knight has been there and has brutally attacked Orbu over in Finland and massacred the local people and the clergy before moving elsewhere and doing the same in other parts of Finland. And so this obviously massively tips the scales in the Swedish council over to the pro-war faction, which is led by Svante Nielsen and Hemming Gad. And they manage even to convince Lubeck to get more involved in the war, who are getting frustrated at the the Danish fleet plundering all this trade that's going on in the Baltic Sea. They're losing money because of the blockade of Sweden that the Danes want to bring in. So things are slowly turning against Hans and Svante Nilsson wants to push the advantage. He really wants Kalmar Castle now. The Danes tried on several occasions to rescue the castle by landing troops and attacking the Swedish troops that were in the town, but Gad and his men withstood the resistance and continued to besiege the castle for several years. We're talking a really long time here. And Hemingad developed an ambitious plan to capture the castle with an attack that included an assault from the seaside, but obstacles such as a lack of troops and resources hindered progress and planning. Eventually, in an attempt to end the siege, Svante Nilsson asked Hemingad in a letter to carry out a storming of the castle. Gad replied that he now only had six ladders left as tools to use, and he felt that storming wasn't really feasible. The Danes were too well entrenched. Yeah, and you need a few more ladders than just six ladders. Perhaps because he was beginning to get frustrated at the lack of progress and also uh, support. And perhaps he was also feeling pressure from Svante Nielsen about this, the way he was conducting the siege. Hemingad asked to resign as commander of the army outside of Kalmar. And his wish was granted. And in February, he was replaced by another member of the Swedish council. And this councillor, after receiving reinforcements from elsewhere in the country, did what Svante Nielsen had advised and led a final assault. And eventually, after a siege that was almost four years long, the castle capitulated around the 20th of August 1510. And unfortunately for us, the details about this final part of the siege are pretty scarce. And that's because the industrious letter writer Hemingad wasn't in command of the Swedish troops, and so he didn't write anything down at about the siege because he obviously he wasn't there so he couldn't write about it but all the all up to this point when he was replaced he wrote so many letters and so we know some of the small details about like the ladders and all this kind of stuff because he wrote all about it yeah it's a shame that the new commander wasn't that into letter writing so we didn't get as much details on how it ended But this is indicative of Svante Nilsson's approach, though. He is eager to start fighting for real. And also, in 1510, he signs a further deal with Lübeck, and they send 18 large ships to the Baltic Sea. So the Danish domination of the waves is now over. 
Or at least it's over for the moment. The Danes realize this is a big turning point, and this actually marks the founding of the Danish-Norwegian Navy. Despite Hans having a fair few ships that are dedicated to battle, the formal history of the Danish Navy began the same year with the founding of a joint Dano-Norwegian Navy in August. That was when Hans appointed one of his vassals to be chief captain and head of all our captains, men and servants, whom we now have appointed and ordered to be at sea. That is too long a title for anyone, Hans. Come on. <laughs> just be Admiral Jeff. Yeah. <laughs> it just needs to be a, a quick title. But this new Admiral, uh, probably not Jeff, more like, um, I don't know, generic Danish name, Anders. Fleming. Admiral Fleming. Admiral Fleming. Yeah, even though this new admiral, this Danish admiral, is appointed chief captain and head of all of our captains, uh, it doesn't really help, though, because the new Lubeck fleet that's helping the Swedes, uh, this gives the Swedes on the opportunity to march and advance forward, and then they take Boyholm Castle and the rest of Erland, the island that Boyholm Castle is on. So this is a really good sign for the Swedes. But, uh, of course, this doesn't mean the Danes are just going to sit around and let this happen. So they prepare to attack from both Norway and Skorna and meet up in Jönköping in Sweden and then march to the east to meet the Danish fleet and go north to Stockholm. So it's a bit of a double attack here. And when he sees this plan starting to come into fruition, Svante Nielsen realises he doesn't really have many good generals left to fight this double Danish invasion. One of them has died, and another one is all the way over in Finland. So this leaves him and Hemingad, basically, plus his very young son with the handy name of Sten Svantesson, who's only uh, the late teenager's age at this point. And this is, yeah, his name is pretty much the ultimate combo of Svante Nielsen and Sten Sture, by the way, Sten Svantesson. It's a very handy name, and he will come back in our story. So keep a little pin in Stan Svantesson, who uh, is uh, currently joining his, uh, his dad in fighting off the Danes. So yeah, the Danes attack from Norway with the army led by Christian, Hans's son, and they burn and sack everything they come into contact with, on the way to meeting up with the other Danish army coming up from Skåne. Christian takes a few castles and ransoms the town of Skåra, but then after five days near Jönköping, I don't know if he gets bored or whatever happens, but he retreats down to Halland. And that is a bit strange, because there is no sign of the other army that was due to come up from Skåne, so maybe that's why uh, Christian gets bored of waiting. He probably wouldn't feel confident to march all over Sweden on his own, considering he's only half of the intended force. So yeah, he decides to head back down south to Denmark, and on the way he continues to just burn everything he can find in Småland. And the people there even write to Svante Nilsson and say that Sildont brand och rov var inte nyttigt. Such fire and plunder was not useful, uh, which seems like a bit of an understatement. <laughs> it was very unuseful when my town was burned down. Oh dear, what a shame. 
leave it to the people of Småland to uh, suffer in uh, good graces when their uh, land is plundered and burnt. Is that typical of them? They're normally just cheap. Yeah, they are. Uh, they That's the stereotype of them. Snell. That they're a bit snell, yeah. They're a bit stingy. Um, but yeah, anyway, whilst being stingy, perhaps they were 500 years ago as they are today. And we're allowed to say that because that's where Orson's mum comes from. So, uh, yeah. I don't know if we're allowed to say that because that's where my mum's from. But all countries have stereotypes about people from different parts of the country. And a stereotype about people from Småland is that they're a bit cheap. And yeah, so these people, they're, they're uh, perhaps feeling this, but they're also very frustrated because they've received no protection at all from the Swedish army. And so they sort of go on strike and say they won't pay any more taxes to Sweden unless they're defended better next time and uh, troops are sent to guard them. That is a pretty big deal. At the same time, Liebig backs out of the war after some losses at sea and the Swedish council have reached the end of their tether, just like they had with Steinsture and with Hans on so many occasions. Yeah, it's a bit strange here. It's quite hard to keep track of where the Germans and Lübeck are in this period of time because almost every other year they join the war, they switch sides, they leave the war, they they faff around not joining the war, then they join again but only for one battle. So just imagine the Germans and especially Lübeck, they're like hopping in and out of the war all over this, <laughs> this period. It's really hard to keep track of them. Exactly. And so now for Svante Nilsson, he's lost the support of Lübeck He's lost the backing of the peasants. And yeah, now the council is sick of him as well. And they write a letter to him demanding that he resigns. However, it turns out that nature or fate or whatever you want to call it actually gets to him first. And Svante Nilsson dies on the 2nd of January 1512, probably from what we today call a stroke. Yeah, I wonder if they still made him formally resign, you know, like when they dug up Oliver Cromwell's body and beheaded him, like after the end of the Civil War and stuff, because, yeah, he's like, your your body is still going to resign. There is no indication of that. It would be amusing. And just like what happened after Sten Sturer's death, the Swedes act quickly. At a council meeting in Arbulga, the nobility who wanted to get rid of Santa Nilsson chose one of their own, a man called Eric Troller, as regent. And he had one foot in Denmark and one foot in Sweden through his family, so he was a proper member of the border nobility in that sense. However, it wasn't a unanimous decision, because Svante Nilsson's son, Sten Svantesson, refused to give up the position his father had had, and successfully got part of the nobility on his side. He even began using the name Sten Sturer the Younger to make the peasants of Sweden think back you know, fondly of Sten Sturer the Elder, who is now, that's what we're going to call him, and what historians call him, Sten Sturer the Older, and his successful victory against the Danes back at the Battle of Brunken Bay, which we covered in episode 91. And this made the peasants think of all the good things they could remember about Sten Sturer the Elder. So now we have two Stensturis in the history of Sweden. And trust me, when you were in middle school, this used to confuse you so much when we studied Swedish history. So let's just clarify it once and for all. There's Stensture the Elder, Stensture den Eldre, the man we've been talking about, who reigned from 1470 to 1497, and then again in 1501 to 1503 as regent. And then there was Svante 
Ante Nilsson and now there's Sten Sture the younger, Sten Sture den yngre. He's Svante Nilsson's son who we've just now see come on the political stage and change his name. So even though they both had the surname Sture, they're not actually related, or at least not closely. They come from two different branches of the vast noble dynasty called Sture. That split so many years before that, you know, it would be like saying, oh, is your eighth cousin twice removed? Is that really part of your family? It's not really, is it? So Exactly. But it's a very conscious move of behalf of this new Stansture, of Stansture the Younger, to, like you said, use the name of the previous regent to, uh, to use uh, that popularity and that momentum in his favour. Stan Sture the Younger is, uh, is kind of uh, mooching off the good brand name that is Stan Sture, from Stan Sture the Elder. But anyway, continue with what happens next. Yeah, so Eric Troller has been appointed regent, and despite Sten of the Younger's protest, this doesn't stop him getting to work. And almost immediately, there are peace negotiations with Denmark and Lubeck, so like a three-way peace agreement. And Lubeck and Denmark sign a separate peace treaty, so that means that, you know, uh, when we said before that Lubeck wanted to leave the war, they do this formally now, and there's a, a big uh, peace treaty that we have loads of the... the bullet points about what they agreed on that we just don't have time to talk about now. So they agree a separate piece, but the Swedes, uh, because there's all this going on with new regents and stuff, they postpone the decision on a full peace treaty with Denmark until the following year. Meanwhile, back in Sweden, the young Stan Sture has really managed to get a bit of a momentum and support going. And in July of 1512, the original election of Erik Trolle as regent was decided to be void. And in his place, Stan Sture the Younger is elected regent of Sweden. But both Erik Trolle and his family are still powerful people and they are upset being snubbed of the role of regent and they're not likely to forget this anytime soon. So remember the name Trolle and remember that they are angry. Yeah, because this is a huge political development. This guy has been in the job almost uh, almost as short a time as Liz Truss was Prime Minister <laughs> of the UK. Um, and they're really annoyed, just like she was, of being kicked out and replaced by someone else. I wonder if this is the first time anyone has ever made a comparison between Eric Trolle in the 1510s in Sweden and Liz Truss in the 2020s in the UK. I guarantee it is the first time that that's happened. But for Sweden in general, there is now a new Sture in charge and a ceasefire with Denmark until the following summer when there's supposed to be proper peace talks. Yeah, but instead of being Svante Nielsen meeting Hans, which would have happened if it had happened six months previously, it will now be Sten Sturer the Younger meeting King Christian. As before that second meeting, Hans dies in early 1513 and his son Christian succeeds him as Christian II. Because of course, yeah, he's named after his grandfather, the former King Christian, who we saw fight and lose at the Battle of Brunke Bay and also fight against people like Karl Knutson Bunda and yeah, as we said, the first Stan Sture a few episodes ago. So yeah, we have a new Stan Sture and we have a new Christian on stage. Brilliant. It's like when everybody was called Ingeboy back in like the 1100s. 
Hans died at Allboy House Castle a short time after being thrown off his horse. Horses were a dangerous form of transport then, and I suppose they are now as well, but we, we use them less. Hans is certainly not the only nobleman in European history to have fallen foul of misadventure on horseback and actually it resulting in his death. Hans was buried in the church of the Franciscan Friary in Woodense. Queen Christina, his wife, who lived the latter part of her life in a nunnery in Woodense, commissioned a German sculpture to create a magnificent burial chapel where both she and her husband were laid to rest after she had died in 1521. But yeah, so now it's the second Christian in charge of Denmark, 30-odd years after his grandfather of the same name was king. And we'll see that Christian is perhaps the most determined of all Danish monarchs to assert his right to be king of Sweden. And that's saying something, as the rest have been pretty determined too. And Christian decides he will stop at absolutely nothing to ensure that the Swedish crown is placed upon his head. So... What next, now that we have almost seamlessly moved from the 1400s into the 1500s? It's a new decade, it's even a new century, we're reaching the end of the Middle Ages, or we might have already reached it, depending on what definition of the Middle Ages you use. But anyway, it's a new century, but it's very much business as usual, what with the regents and the kings fighting with Denmark and Sweden and having trouble keeping the Kalmar Union together. Will that change now that we've entered the 1500s? Well, that's what we'll see over the next couple of episodes. But first, next time we'll see how the new Stensture and the new Christian get along. Spoilers! They're not going to be friends. Alas, it's not all peace and roses just yet, but uh, exactly what happens, we'll uh, start the story of next time. For now, it's just time to say uh, goodbye. Thanks for listening. And uh, if you want to support the show, the best way of doing that is uh, talking about it on social media and to your friends or even leaving a review on whatever platform you listen to us on. This is way past from uh, when we released this, but it's now in the start of December when we're recording this, uh, when loads of people have been sharing their various uh, reviews from Spotify, like the review of their year, the Spotify wrapped, and also on our other platforms they've been talking about and tagging us when uh, we've been the podcast they've listened to the most in 2023 or in their top five or top ten. So it's been super cool to read and uh, see on social media. So thank you, everybody, who uh, listened to us over the years. Like we said, um, yeah, this is well out of date now. This is going to be whenever this is in January or February when we release this episode. But uh, thank you anyway. Yeah, that's the problem you have when you record episodes a bit in advance. The thank yous are sometimes uh, delayed because we're also due to say a very belated thank you so much to Rule from the Netherlands who sent us, or mainly me actually, but us, some tasty tasty Dutch licorice. It was for my birthday back in July. My birthday is not in August, Chris, as you've written here in the script. No, but, no but he was going to send me in August. Oh, no, you just wrote it wrong no. in the script. <laughs> oh. 
anyway, Rule sent me some very tasty licorice and it arrived in time for us to eat uh, over a very snowy December here in Stockholm. Yeah, which was amazing. Thank you so much, Rule. It was very kind of you to send us all that lovely licorice and it made us very happy. So uh, thank you so much for your generosity and unset und bedankt. Indeed, bedankt. But for now, all that remains is to say thank you for listening and see you next time. Bye-bye. Hey, do. These cannons aren't the giant cannons you'd expect from Pirates of the Cambrook. Car- <laughs> this new admiral, uh, probably not Jeff, more like, um, I don't know, generic Danish name, Anders. Fleming. Admiral Fleming. Admiral Fleming. Admiral Fleming from Flemingsburg. <laughs> was Flemingsburg, uh, was that Danish at this point? Maybe it's not. But. First of all, you're thinking of Flensburg, yeah, which yeah. was in Schleswig-Holstein. Where's Flemingsburg? That must be a place. You've made it up. No, that I'm, I'm go- listeners. I'm googling because I'm pretty sure Fleming's Bay. No, it's a place in Stockholm, isn't it? <laughs> Fleming's Bay. Yeah. But there must be one in Denmark too. Uh, Fleming's Bay. It's apparently a city in Kentucky. Okay. Um, but wait, Denmark. Denmark. Flemingsburg. Oh no, that's a there's a Danish Wikipedia article about the place in Kentucky. <laughs> so that doesn't really help. Um, okay. Oh, Flemingsburg is a city in Fleming County in Kentucky, USA. In uh, 2000, it had 3,010 inhabitants. So maybe there isn't a Flemingsburg in uh, in Denmark. So it's uh, Fleming from... Odense. Odense. Fleming from Odense. Yeah. Yeah, sorry Danish people, but that is how you speak. Nej, undskyld til alle vores danske lyssnere. Det er ikke så, ni snakker. Well, sometimes.